You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Dylan Mallet. He has been helping solve problems, deeply understanding choices, and making wise decisions to be the best advisor he can. He navigates complex financial lives to be a wise steward of the wealth by deeply understanding values and how to align those resources with his clients. On today's show, we talk about what are some of the biggest mistakes founders of companies make when they sell their companies? What happens to your taxes when there's a valuation pop in your startup's equity? Should environmental, social, and corporate governance, ESG, concern a startup founder and their company? And is there benefits for a startup founder to join the Association of Corporate Growth? This and much more on today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Dylan, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, I'm very excited for today's episode. I mean, I've known Dylan for a while. He's got an amazing history here in Silicon Valley. He's working with all types of amazing companies, entrepreneurs, you name it, Dylan's involved. But you know, for our audience out there, Dylan, can you give a bit of a background for them on your career up into this point? Yeah, sure, Sean. And thanks so much for having me. I am incredibly excited to, uh, to be here. And it's a tremendous honor to be uh, counted amongst your, uh, your podcast guests. I've been working with entrepreneurs my entire career and, and frankly, my entire life. It starts, um, you know, my father was an entrepreneur of a middle market uh, growth business, and I got to witness firsthand uh, his experience, the, the emotionality and the entire life cycle of that, uh, of that business. He always called it the business school of hard knocks. And it's exactly why I work with entrepreneurs today and have for the last almost 15 years. And it's the favorite part about what I do is working with the most exciting luminaries and entrepreneurs, and I get to be a part of their journey and their story. And it's just a whole lot of fun. Now, you kind of mentioned it there, but I mean, you do work with a lot of entrepreneurs. Why do you enjoy it so much? What's so exciting about that? They're fascinating people, right? Being an entrepreneur isn't a job title. It's a set of character traits. And I love working with the doers of big things, the makers, the iconoclasts, by definition, if you're, doing, if you're an entrepreneur, you're doing something new, you're doing something different, or at least in a different time, in a different way than, than other people have done it before. It's always just so much fun to be an intimate part of their lives, their success stories. And oftentimes, I'm coming to meet them during a very exciting period of time in, uh, in their journey and being able to serve them, guide them. It's, it's, it's very stimulating. Okay. So it sounds like everything is rosy. It sounds like there's never any problems, any issues, but I got to ask, have you seen any problems? Have you seen any situations where, you know, outside guidance could help? Could you share with us some of the problems an entrepreneur might face? My whole role is guiding them as the person in their, you know, in their personal financial lives, right? As that intersects with with the business. But that oftentimes, because it can be so hard to separate the entrepreneur, where the, where the identity of the business 
and the identity of the entrepreneur begin and end, right? And so sitting at that, uh, at that intersection can bring forward a lot of different challenges. It can be challenges with the business. It can be uh, growth stages. It can be trying to get the right resources. And also realizing that you know, the, the leadership journey is oftentimes a very lonely one. And that's true even in established organizations that have been around you know, companies, government, military, you name it for a long, long time. But it's especially so within the entrepreneur's mindset, because oftentimes it's their first time going through these types of journeys and everything is new, especially if they're not a serial entrepreneur. But this is maybe perhaps not their first venture, but their first venture and their first business to really make it big. And they were the creator, the founder, the big thinker. They're not necessarily the skilled business operator of a much larger enterprise than they maybe were 18 months ago, six months ago, three years ago, you name it. Generally speaking, it's a, it's a frenetic experience working with entrepreneurs. A lot of times chasing, uh, chasing down ADD and, and, and managing, uh, you know, managing to those uh, limited attention windows. But there's a lot of challenges that entrepreneurs face. Now, let's go into details of exact challenges. I mean, in the last, say, few months, were there any challenges specific that came top of, or that come top of mind right now where this was a challenge and this was a solution? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty, pretty big question. We could, we could probably spend all day uh, you know, talking about that. But when it comes to you know, specific challenges, obviously, it, we're, we're still in the COVID economy and, and, and what exactly the, the post-COVID world looks like. There's a lot of different uh, meanings for a lot of different people. And it's been a tremendous benefit. It's been a big boon to a lot of businesses and they're growing. And frankly, you know, right now what we're seeing is M&A activity for those growth stage companies is at an arguably all-time high. It's certainly the highest I've ever seen it in my career. There's a lot of reasons for that from valuation to, to changeover. People are looking to do different things. So a lot of folks are, are, are looking for, for, for the exit if they, can, if they can find it. Now, when you're saying valuations, when you're saying looking for the exit, let's go back a little bit. What, would, what are valuations based on? What would an exit kind of be based on kind of, you know, from an investor's point of view, from the entrepreneur's point of view? How, did, how do they go about thinking about an actual range of maybe a target? Sure. Well, there's, of course, there, there's a lot of different uh, ways to, to value a business and we won't get into those you know, here, but there's usually the emotional valuation right, from the entrepreneurs. I think it's worth X and that might be very well grounded. It might be based on a formal valuation or comps or you name it. It also might be based on, hey, I think it'd be really cool if we got to number X, Y, Z, whatever, whatever that might be. But we know that it is definitely a frothy market out there. It's a world awash with money. And we also have a lot of acquirers, a lot of buyers, a lot of folks that have raised money are looking to, to deploy capital. And you have a lot of investors or a lot of entrepreneurs saying, hey, maybe I want to do something different with my life. This, is, this, this business venture has gone tremendously well. I'm surprised, you know, we've been through enormous challenges just like everybody else has over the last year and a half in particular, but things are looking really great. We've survived, we've thrived, we've grown. And now I'm staring at uh, you know, potential offers or potential exits that are you know, sometimes higher than my, my wildest dreams ever were. And I think a lot of folks are looking to 
to capitalize on that before either the tide changes. Um, and of course, we have uh, tax reform likely, and, and we're likely to be in a less favorable tax environment moving forward than, than we are today. And all those things come together to, uh, to spurring on a lot of that M&A activity. So let's talk about kind of that transition period from when they get an offer to tax plan of that start, when they start having a conversation with you. How long in advance of that exit does that happen? What's some advice that is normally given or some things for them to think about early on? I really appreciate that question. Ideally, I'm, I'm getting to know and meeting with and engaging with these entrepreneurs years in advance of that type of exit conversation really, really, really happening. Sometimes it doesn't happen that way. Sometimes it happens a little bit closer to that, uh, that liquidity event or that offer occurring. But the reason why you want to think about things earlier rather than later is because you want to be intentional about what the personal decisions are that you have to, to make on your own personal balance sheet. Going through an M&A process is exhausting for everybody, especially for an entrepreneur that is absolutely in the mix of it. They're, they're looking at the precipice of something that's really, really exciting, but also potentially life-changing. They're parting with their business. They're parting with their creation. There's their management team. There's their people let alone their family and themselves, what they're going to do afterwards. The work that I try to do is to help them really quantify what that looks like and figure out what are their priorities and what are the decisions they have to make you know, now, next, and later. And that can be different even if at, at, at different thresholds. So, so someone that is three years away from selling a business is going to have a very different set of questions for them to address as opposed to someone who's staring at offers on the table and say, hey, what do I do now? Actually, let's, let's go there for a moment. If someone approaches you three years in advance, what questions should they ask you? And then say someone has that offer on the table in front of them, what questions should they ask you? I mean, because I would guess they're, they're night and day with those question sets. Uh, they, they can be, but they're really leading towards, towards the same end goal. And the first is helping them to translate what does offer, offer X, whatever the number is. You, know, you, you can ch choose any number, choose any valuation. What does that actually translate to them on a post-tax basis? And what are they able to do with that into perpetuity? And where should they even be thinking about planning for, plan planning for what to do with their wealth, planning for themselves personally? What are they going to do afterwards? A lot of the opportunities will, will be varying degrees of important based on different valuations. So, so, so what I mean by that is if someone's coming into a significant liquidity event, change their life liquidity, they may have a certain set of priorities. One of them, of course, is lifestyle, right? It's, it's, it's securing the things that they want to do personally from, a, from an expenditure standpoint. There's philanthropy, there's wealth transfer planning. Those happen in varying degrees, not just for different people, but someone who's exiting for $10 million has a very different set of oftentimes priorities than that even same very person exiting for $100 million or $500 million, as well as the solution set in terms of how to address those completely different. And they want to understand what's important to them and what are those thresholds and what are the, what's the impact of making some of those decisions well in advance, ideally years in advance of a transaction ultimately happening. Sometimes that opportunity isn't there, but the both confidence and clarity as well as the economics can be significant when they have the opportunity to do thoughtful planning well in advance of that event happening. 
question on that. If they're able to do thoughtful planning well in advance of something happening, say three years in advance, how could their planning kind of impact the amount of money needed in the exit for them to do what they want? I, I mean, how much tax savings is a possibility by well thought out planning? How much lifestyle guidelines, I guess you could say, could be thought out if it's well in advance planned? I mean, lot, I'm thinking of a lot of things right now. Well, sure. And there's, of course, there's things to do on the business, right? A business that is ready to sell and in good shape and, and has, has dealt with a lot of those issues, has worked with an investment bank, ideally well in advance of getting to that point in time is going to fetch a higher valuation because it's just going to be it in better condition. But them themselves personally, it depends on what that amount of liquidity that they're looking at is ultimately going to be. But just to give some conceptual examples, sometimes the long-term economics in terms of better wealth outputs to the family are several or sometimes even tens of millions of dollars. And how that comes to be is essentially on transferring assets off of your personal balance sheet before they increase in value. There's a lot that goes into it, but two, two big issues right now, of course, we have expected tax reform in some fashion. We don't know exactly what that looks like today, but it's time and interest rates. So time, obviously, that's a function of how long you have left to live, but then also start earlier. Earlier is better than later, but then also interest rates, right? Interest rates are an all-time low, and there's a lot of wealth transfer regimes that are more effective in lower interest rate environments. And so they want to be able to take advantage of those in the here and now, and the ability to do so can have tremendous opportunities and tremendous economic output and utility to that family over time. So let's say they came to you three years in advance. So there's plenty of time to set up anything needed. Say the exit is 50 million and they want to set up a family office. What type of generation thought process should they be thinking then? Sure. So, so first of all, it all starts with what do they actually want to do and why, right? You know, a lot, a lot of times folks want to get to the, the, the what, right? Or the how, and what do I invest in? Or What's, what's a preferred structure, right? We, we, we get involved and, in, in, you know, roll up our sleeves in that alongside the, the, you know, accountants and attorneys and doing a lot of that work. And while it can be fun for, you know, our, our analytical selves, uh, it really has to start with the, with, with the why. And what is that business owner really looking to accomplish when they finally get to the end of that rainbow? The pot of gold is there. And how does that translate into very real terms and decisions that they can make? Along, you know, along today. So again, it depends on a framework of treating those different future buckets of money with very different intentions and purpose. And so an example of that might be, you might have a certain pool of capital that you need to endow your lifestyle into perpetuity, even if capital markets don't cooperate for a very long period of time, right? That's going to be treated in a certain type of way. Then there's also subsequent ventures. Just about every entrepreneur, unless they're really tired and, and they're ready to ride off into the sunset, most of them, they might want to take a little bit of a break. They're pro they probably have another dozen ideas of exciting things along with friends themselves, other entrepreneurs that they want to connect with. They want to see their next ventures. Right? That's part of it. A lot of direct investment. And then there's you know, secondary goals such as supporting family, philanthropic giving, impact investing, venture, you name it. And it's about thoughtfully sizing all of those different pools and trying to do so ahead of time. And what that can do for someone that is earlier on in the process is to say, okay, 
Now I understand it. And my valuation is X. And I'm not going to have a whole lot of surplus capital or things to, to allocate towards these secondary goals. But I understand if my valuation does increase materially over the next three years, right? And I hit my growth, growth metrics. I want to be thinking about them ahead of time. And because here are some of the economics and some of the, the benefits to thoughtfully allocating to, to those strategies ahead of time. So are you saying in some instances, you'll sit down with a founder, they'll tell their goals, I want to give this much to this charity, or I want to get this much set aside for maybe a new idea. And then they go back to the company that they're current, currently at and go, you know what? We can't exit this year. We need to double this or increase this. Maybe we, we postpone our exit for two, three years. How many of those conversations after talking to you, do they go back to their company where they're currently at and re-kind of think their current strategy, current milestones, things that they have to hit to get to where they just had a conversation with you about? I think it goes in the opposite direction more often than not. And, and so what I mean by that is that you know, they may realize that one X amount that they're going to realize whether they own 100% or close to 100% of a business or it's venture backed and they've been diluted down and it's a large enterprise and they have a small percentage, which is still a very large sum of capital and liquidity at the end of the day. But to those folks where they want to be able to think about, hey, wait a minute, this really is going to be enough even where I am today, or if I get to X, you know, XYZ goal or that number of what I wanted to get, I don't need that much. Or gosh, sometimes it's actually, I'm going to need a lot more. And I've got all these other fanciful ideas of philanthropy and subsequent ventures, but I'm not actually there yet. And I mean, I think every entrepreneur of, a, of an exciting growing company, they're head down, they're focused on executing their strategy for the sake thereof. Yes, they want an exit. Yes, they want to be financially successful and realize that at some point in time. But I don't think we're coloring their business decisions in the here and now, rather helping them understand, okay, I'm going to get to a personal place. This is what that means. I'm already already there. Or when I get to X, that's going to mean Y for me and my family. And then being able to anticipate some of those secondary priorities, because again, the economics of thoughtful planning ahead of time can be so significant. Now, are tax consequences and planning kind of different based on what type of exit it is? What I mean by that is getting acquired versus going public. Yes. I mean, that's one for the tax nerds. But really, there's, there's different strategies and different regimes that are relevant in both of those types of scenarios, whether it's a founder, founder-led business that's going, you know, going public or a private transaction, either for, for, you know, with a private equity uh, sponsor or from a strategic you know, stock or cash. There are different permutations of, of the tax law that are relevant. A lot of planning regimes apply to some and not the others, and you want to be able to identify those well in advance. I mean, one example of that is, again, for the tax nerds following along at home, you know, QSBS or Section 1202, that for smaller business owners, founders, we, we do a tremendous amount of work in helping them, one, capitalize on that and understand the impact uh, you know, to them and to their families. There's, there's significant opportunities there. I, I know I'm going to get a complaint from the tax nerds because... <laughs> I don't mean to disparage them. There are, there are, there are valued and, and, and a, a critical partners in all this. So there's the planning for the exit. What about the planning for when you set up at the very beginning stages of your company? Is there anything you should be thinking about then? Thinking maybe the rounds of funding or maybe 
equity for your co-founders or what are, what are some thoughts at the very beginning should be thinking about that might impact later on? I'd say it comes back to being intentional and understanding what the trade-offs are that, right? So some, 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 you know, without getting into, into tax specifics, there are trade-offs of different business decisions that might have simplicity today versus tax efficiency on the back end or ease of raising capital and going through different financing rounds that have different trade-offs associated with them without, without getting into, into those specifics. But they do want to go through the thoughtful work of quantifying what those trade-offs are. How does it affect me today? How does it affect me to be able to raise capital through different growth stages of my business and then upon eventual exit? Because, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I've seen it on both sides. I've seen it where either by great planning or by happy accident, they're surprised to learn that you know, a significant portion of their company is eligible for qualified small business stock. And they're not going to have to pay federal capital gains on a good chunk of what they're selling, provided that they meet, you know, meet those criteria. Or on the flip side, you have someone that structured a business, it's been hugely profitable. They're doing a great job of leading and growing this business, but there is nothing they can do upon exit for, for, for tax savings and tax efficiency. And those can be pretty painful conversations. Oh gosh, I mean, I could imagine just that that knife that you're stabbing into them when you go, yeah, we can't save you anything. For sure. Another question though, what happens for taxes when a company has maybe that valuation pop? You know, they've hit that milestone. It just goes from here to here real quick. It just hockey stick. What happens then? Well, it depends if they've changed in structure and w- without getting into uh, to tax interpretation, right? I'm not a tax advisor. That's one of those thresholds, right, where you want to, before you're going to experience a valuation pop, if you have any sense that that might be coming, or if we hit these growth goals, we have these really significant ambitions, and we're, we're headed towards that happening, right? Even if it's not an exit, it's a valuation pop. You really do want to go through that, that, that exercise to say, hey, what might be the benefit of setting up trusts you know, for my family, considering wealth transfer? Do I have the capacity? To do those types of things, sometimes the answer is no, right? And we say, hey, you don't, you don't want to get ahead of yourself. You need to, you know, secure your own balance sheet first and foremost. But then here are the opportunities, and here are certain thresholds where those are going to become much more relevant and much more important. And what about in the news right now? ESG is everywhere: environmental, government, social. Should startups founders be concerned with this in their companies? If so, why? Why not? Yeah, I think this is a personal area of, of passion and deep interest for me. So, so ESG, environmental, social, and governance criteria, previously called socially responsible investing, impact investing, purpose-driven investing. There's a lot of, of nomenclature that gets thrown out there. I am a firm believer that capital investment can drive change for good. And the ability and the scope of, its, of capital investment and ESG criteria is only increasing. I think it's increasing at a logarithmic pace, which is tremendously exciting, not just from an investment standpoint of we can do things that deploy capital that not only bring into an investor's own personal values and reflect that and express that point of view in the way that they're deploying their capital, but it matters a lot more to companies and to customers these days which is terrific to see. And so it matters from an institutional investment standpoint in that if you're looking to be acquired, if you're looking to bring on partners, if you have ESG risks 
Well, that's going to be a problem. That's going to eventually, you know, harm your potential valuation or cause other headaches down the road. Conversely, if you have really great practices or you are, you know, changing the way, changing your industry, improving the environmental outcomes through the, your, your supply chains, or if you're a food business, how you're, how you're making food, or you have really great uh, rep- diverse representation and governance policies at your board and throughout your executive r- ranks, and you're empowering your employees and your communities. One, customers are demanding that a lot more and more often. So that resonates with a customer base. We don't have to go into why that's important. Two, uh, from all stages, you know, venture, private equity, public equity investors, the importance of that ESG criteria is only growing. And so I think it benefits entrepreneurs. Some are driven principally by, by the motivation to, to do something better in the world from, a, from an ESG standpoint. Others say, hey, I have this really great idea and I'm executing on this business. But these things are important to us. They're important to our employees. They're important to our customers. They're important to our investors and our future investors if you're a growth stage company. I think it's tremendously exciting to, to see. And there are, there's cynicism out there. There's greenwashing on the other side of that. There's greenwashing out there um, with respect to you know, ESG criteria. And, and you know, is it all just window dressing or can you really experience positive returns? But I think it's a relevant, uh, relevant dimension that is just getting more and more exciting and more and more empowering. And I think it's, it's, it's going to be a bigger driver of success for businesses at all stages in the future than it is today. I want to go a little bit back to when the startup has the exit. I've always been curious because you hear about these people that now have $50 million and their lives should be fantastic, but sometimes it brings in other problems. Sometimes then the family goes at it. Sometimes they regret never, not even you know, ever getting the money. How often are, in your, from your experience, do situations like that actually occur where the money was a curse, not a blessing? Yeah. And that, and that comes back to your personal values, your experience with wealth, as well as, as, well as your family values. I think that I'm a firm believer in the adage. I, I can't remember who it's originally attributed to, but I certainly didn't come up with it. But money doesn't change you. It magnifies who you are. And some people are not prepared to come into that type of wealth, or maybe they are because they created it and they've been operating this business and they've been, they've been making really smart decisions around this asset to begin with. Now it's just liquid and that's, you know, and that's different in character, but maybe their family isn't really equipped to come into, you know, those types of issues. And I hear it actually more and more, and I've, I've seen it, you know, a generation or two removed from that, that wealth creation go, <laughs> go in a bad way. But I've heard it more and more often. I'm tremendously wealthy. I have more than I need. That's terrific. And I've got great ideas from a philanthropic standpoint, from an impact standpoint. And, you know, I want to enjoy some nice things personally too, but I don't want to ruin my kids. And I, I want them to, to thrive and lead productive lives. And they know it, whether they know actual figures and dollars or, you know, or, or count, I don't want them counting on an inheritance or for their primary activity throughout their lives to be just recipients of that, of that wealth creation. And I've, I've seen it both ways. I've seen multi-generational wealthy families that have done a great job of this. And G1, G2, G3, as we call it, or GN. Uh, in 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 in, the, in industry, are 
smart, wise stewards of their wealth and have a connection to original family values as well as their own influence and use that resource to do great things. And I've, I've seen it on the, on the other side where it, uh, it, it really you know, causes, causes significant problems. And I think it's something that people that are coming into tremendous levels of liquid wealth are, are frequently worried about. And in a little bit, I want to ask about your involvement with ACG, which is an amazing organization. And we're going to talk about that before. But before that, going back to the generational wealth, family offices, we've never really talked too much about that on this show. I was wondering if you're comfortable with maybe giving us a little discussion. Are you seeing more activity with family offices actually investing in startups? Are those conversations happening? Yeah, I mean, so so the first thing, of course, is is a family office, and and the adage goes, you know, if you've met one family office, you've met one family office. They mean a tremendously different set of things to different people. They they, they are sometimes it's one accountant in a in a lonely office somewhere, and other times they're enormous investment institutions with uh, that are that are doing a lot of uh, a lot of different things. I will say, to, you know, to to your question of family offices investing in startups directly, I think that is happening all throughout the capital stack is it's more direct investment, focus and appetite there, disintermediation between those sources of capital um, and various investment middlemen and the end businesses that are, that are raising capital. So there's a growing appetite for direct investment. And then lastly, and you know, we see it at, at Bernstein, of course, too, and, and very much our thought leaders in this space, that the role and importance of private markets continues to grow. And this comes back to entrepreneurs where, and I say this all the time, everybody's different and entrepreneurs are risk takers by definition, right? But they're oftentimes risk takers on their creation, on things they can control to a certain modicum, understand it's transparent. It's their business and they control a lot of it. They're not oftentimes as big of a risk taker when it comes to capital markets. And the last thing that they want to do typically is say, great, I just got paid an enormous multiple on my business by whoever the acquirer was. I'm not going to turn around and just dump that into public stocks at sky high valuations and just be completely comfortable with it. They tend to want to favor cash flow production and investing in directly in businesses, both their own as well as, uh, as through allocators. And the role and the importance of private markets continues to grow. That's lending to private companies. It's, it's investing directly in private companies. It's private real estate. It's beyond the traditional stocks and bonds universe that a lot of times people first think of when it comes to investing. That's interesting. It reminds me of an earlier interview we did with the senior VP of NASTEC when he was talking about, you know, one thing they're seeing is these companies stay private for so much longer that when they finally do go public, they're at, you know, a multi-billion dollar valuation. How much further can they go when they go, pu go public at 50 billion? You know, maybe they go to 100, maybe they go to 200 versus back in the day when Amazon went public at 50 million. How does this factor into kind of planning when these companies are staying public for so, so much longer? And maybe, you know, how does that factor into your, your, your thought process of allocation and kind of portfolio? Well, it's a, it's a huge part of it um, in that going public doesn't mean the same thing that it used to be, used to. And a big part of that is because these private growth stage companies don't need 
to go through the trouble of, of necessarily going public to raise capital and to get liquidity for you know, certain, certain, certain shareholders because there's an appetite and you know, venture has grown up, private equity has just continued to expand. And there are lots of sources of, of, of private capital out there and thusly private investment opportunities for those allocators in the first place. So companies might say, we're going to stay private for a very long period of time and, and only go you know, public at a you know, very mature state, as opposed to previously where you'd really rarely see that a growth stage company would want to get, you know, go to be public as soon as possible. I'll say how it translates into the wealth planning that I do and, and advising those entrepreneurs is that one, venture investors have also become more friendly to founders taking some, you know, chips off the table at various stages, right? Just to, you know, give an extreme example, it's like, okay, we don't want this, you know, tech stage, tech, tech entrepreneur in their 30s or their 40s that now has on paper $250 million worth of shares, but they can't buy a house in San Francisco, right? That, that, that creates a bunch of incentives that nobody really ultimately wants. And so there's usually opportunities for those founders to take meaningful, they still want, you know, there, there, there'd be skin in the game, but significant liquidity off the table. Um, and we help them think through that. Is there any type of wealth planning advice or research that you recommend our listeners? I mean, most of our listeners are, are entrepreneurs or VCs kind of just, you know, to sit back and, hey, here's some books just to read. Here's some information. Here's some things just to think about so you can kind of get the basics. Uh, of of enough so you can have questions later. Yeah, I'd say I'd say as opposed to you know a book or 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 a publication, it's get your team in order early. That applies to your executive team and you know business resources that you are you know if you're thinking about selling the business or doing things for the business to get it into a better place or what have you, but also you personally because it's so it's such bespoke work. Right. I mean, what we can we can talk for I could talk for hours and hours and hours about wealth transfer regimes and you know and and tax permutations and ways to invest and and so on. But the reality is is that it's so driven by that individual circumstance that they need the proper translation and proper guidance. Because especially once they go through that liquidity event or or get close to it, you know, and I've seen this too, where where there are so many people, you know, circling out there, pitching them ideas pitching them investments, uh, and they're sitting on an enormous pile of cash because all of a sudden making those decisions come, becomes really, really hard. Okay. And with that, let's, let's transition the conversation to, you're now currently the president of ACG. Can you talk a little bit about this organization? Kind of talk about, as you talk about it, I know our listeners are already going to start thinking, how can my company work with these guys? How can my company get, get active? How can they get involved? But please tell us a little bit about the organization. Yeah, sure. So I'm president of ACG San Francisco currently, and that's a chapter of ACG, which is the Association for Corporate, Corporate Growth. And I think of ACG as the premier ecosystem for resources for middle market growth companies. A lot of that is oriented around M&A, and a lot of it is oriented towards helping companies achieve growth organically as well. It's a terrific organization with a robust set of professional resources and other entrepreneurs as well, too. It's, it's my favorite part of those experiences is, is highlighting, whether it's at uh, you know, growth awards or various uh, uh, panel discussions, highlighting those entrepreneur stories 
And it's a, it's a privilege because we get to be at the forefront of a lot of companies and kind of nurture them before they become uh, you know, household names. And just to name a, a handful that we've honored in our growth awards off memory in the last uh, several years, I mean, it's um, Yoko's Kitchen, Grove Collaborative, Good Eggs, LinkedIn, Nextera Energy, The Real Real. There are some big companies in there, both public and private. Where, uh, where they were being nurtured and, and, and working with, within that ecosystem, they were small and they were growing and uh, they've gone on to do terrific, exciting things, obviously, since. So how can a, an entrepreneur, how can a, a startup that's hidden that growth, how can they get involved with ACG? Well, I'd say just reach out and, and, and say hello. The, the ecosystem is there to, to support entrepreneurs and work with them in a very diverse set of, uh, of, of circumstances. Fantastic. And Dylan, if there's anything else that you think our audience should take away from this, any lessons learned, any stories, anything like that, and this is the opportunity to share anything you think that you want them to grasp that we, st- we haven't talked about. Well, I, I would say I'd, I'd go back to the journey and of, of leadership and being an entrepreneur and the acknowledgement that that is inherently often a very lonely experience, despite working with, Lots of folks interfacing with their team and outside investors, you know, you name it throughout very, very busy, frenetic days and, and even years. And that's why the peer-to-peer formats are oftentimes so valuable to them. And to say, I, I don't think that value can be, can be overstated because most on, growth stage entrepreneurs don't have 10 close friends that have gone through that same experience, unlike a lot of other life-changing experiences that we go throughout our lives where friends, family, peers have gone through you know, these things and we learn and we leverage from their collective experiences. And so it's just acknowledging that, uh, that, that the potential loneliness of that leadership struggle and the need to get the right help and surround themselves with trusted people that they can lean on to for, for guidance and to hear them as well as other peers. And I think that's why you see so many Terrific organizations and facilitations of those peer-to-peer formats, YPO, EO, Bernstein, you know, puts them together as well, and they're always a whole lot of insightful fun when we get to be part of them. It's interesting you mentioned that. Many of our past guests, I mean, many of them have talked about the mental wellness of startup founders, especially you know at the end of the conversation when I bring that up. That seems to be that topic that it's always there but not talked about enough. So. I mean, I want to end on a good note, but Dylan, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it? Appreciate that question. Find me on LinkedIn, Bernstein.com, or reach out and say hello. Let's schedule a Zoom or golf. I'm a really bad golfer, but uh, you know what? Uh, let's, let's get together and have a conversation. Fantastic. If anyone wants to find out more information about myself, please visit thesiliconvalleypodcast.com or find me on LinkedIn as well. And with that, Dylan, I want to thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. 